So hello, and welcome to the latest Dun & Bradstreet B2B podcast. I have a, a wonderful group of people here today, and uh, really excited to be bringing this to you live from DC. Um, my name is Dustin Luther, and I'm the Director of Engagement at Dun & Bradstreet, and uh, really excited to you know dive back into this government contracting uh, side of the business, and, and really what's important to small business owners, and you know all kinds of business owners from around the country. So we have a, a, a wonderful team here with us today. What I really want to be getting into is understanding suspension and debarment pitfalls. Um, this is something that uh, this this team here, these guys that I've, I've worked with and, and talked with, I should say, in, in the recent past, it's something that's become quite an issue recently. So um, really happy to have the, uh, the Kilpatrick Townsend office, office here and, and have them welcome us. So, so thank you again. Um, the three guests that I have are Gunjan Talati. He's with Kilpatrick Townsend. We have Bob Munier, Munier, sorry, Bob Munier of the Debarment Solutions Institute. And we have Scott Davidson of GSA. Um, Vets GSA. So I really want to welcome the three of you, and I think it's also worth noting that we had one more guest who was going to join us, uh, Dismiss uh, Locaria of Venable, but he's, uh, he's, he's not able to get to us today. But uh, I think we have a full house, and we definitely have so much to cover. So I am uh, really excited and really looking forward to just having a conversation with these guys. So uh, excited that uh, you'll be able to join us. Um, in just a moment, we're going to pull some slides that will really go into the problem and, and where we're at, and I'll be displaying those. But before we dive into that, um, I really want to dive into just understanding these, these three guys. So if you can each give us an introduction, and I should start with uh, Scott Davidson. I'd, I'd really like it if you could give an intro. And then I really want you to lead this conversation today. Yeah. I think that you, um, you know, you know these guys. You can really dive in. You know, as somebody who's dealt with this yeah. day in and day out. So if you can give us an introduction and really just take it from here, that would be awesome. Uh, thank you, Dustin. I appreciate it. Again, we appreciate Dun and Bradstreet for allowing us to participate in these types of uh, podcasts, uh, webinars, for that matter. And we're all excited to be here. Just a quick introduction for myself. Uh, my name is Scott Davidson. I'm managing principal of VetsGSA. Uh, we are a full, uh, I guess you could say, cradle to grave or cradle to cradle, um, government, uh, business to business, um, contract support firm when it comes to GSA schedules and uh, GSA schedule related opportunities, uh, whether it's post award audits, uh, pre award proposals, things of that nature. I've uh, worked with Gunjin and his team in the past, worked with Dustin in the past, and again, we appreciate your time and effort today on this, uh, this topic. Bob? I'm Bob Mernier. I am currently the CEO and general counsel, owner of Debarment Solutions Institute. Prior to forming the Institute eight years ago upon my retirement from federal service, I spent 32 years in the federal government almost exclusively in the field of suspension and debarment, writing the rules and uh, bringing actions before SDOs. I also spent 13 years as EPA suspending and debarring official and 22 years as uh, the chair of the Interagency Suspension and Debarment Committee. DSI does not provide legal representation, however we do provide training, consulting, and uh, monitoring services for companies that are placed under administrative agreement. Good morning everybody. I'm Gunshin Talati and I'm a partner here at Kilpatrick Townsend in Washington, D.C. My practice focuses solely on government contracts, and it's a mix of transactional work, regulatory compliance work, and litigation. On the transactional side, that's everything from buying and selling uh, government contractors, 
uh, on the regulatory compliance that's helping companies figure out how to comply with all those pesky FAR, DFARs, and other requirements. And on the litigation side, it's representing contractors in suspension and debarment matters, bid protest, and uh, prime sub disputes. Uh, one thing we wanted to mention is here in DC, we've got several folks that are attending live. Uh, traffic in the DC area is worse than usual due to the <laughs> subway repairs, so you may hear folks trickling in and out. So just as a heads up, we appreciate everybody that's joining live and that's joining on the webinar today. I appreciate that, Gunjan, and again, thank you, uh, Bob and Gunjan, for uh, participating. And we're actually going to jump right into the topic today. Um, as most people know, or, and not maybe we have a lot of people that are going to be online, probably have just general questions about what suspension debarment is and what does it mean as far as the government and you know, as far as GovCon and government contracting. So the first question would come over to Bob and basically say, when we are talking about government contracting, what do we mean and what do we when we talk about or we say suspension and debarment? Suspension and debarment are the government's administrative procedures for removing from the contractor, subcontractor, grant and participant database uh, eligible contractors uh, for reasons of waste, fraud, abuse, poor performance, noncompliance, and uh, uh, a series of other matters that the government have designated as uh, important to the government contracting community. Okay. And then what would be some of those triggers? Just in general, if you had just some general triggers that would probably do it into the suspension debarments, give me, I guess, some for the audience, some general ideas of what would lead to a suspension and debarment in government contracting. By far and away, I think the the greatest trigger is uh, activities that you might say are criminal fraud, uh, misleading the government, false claims, things that are fairly common within the uh, government contracting community. Um, in addition to that, we have other matters such as uh, uh, bribery, gratuities, and the kinds of things that uh, will come into to play when you're dealing with uh, persons who may be moved from government to the private sector and bring their expertise with them. So these are some of the danger zones. Um, audits are becoming increasingly a new uh, a source of suspension and debarment cases. And in very recent years, you've seen there are, uh, we're moving into some uh, uh, areas of, say, you might say political-based actions, tax deficiencies, failure to notify the government, just a number of new areas that are all sort of percolating right now. And so when we talk about, the, and those are all great areas, and, and we appreciate it. So when we talk about those areas of audit, uh, those are some new areas. And, and Gunjan, also, if you want to kind of yeah. address into this piece, too. Give us examples of what is what are we looking what is the government looking for generally what would lead what, I mean we're going to go down the path of false claims we're going to go down the right. path of mandatory disclosure and things right. like that but what usually leads into that audit give us an example of what yeah. we're looking at when he meant when Bob says things like audit and things of that nature what falls into those what, that realm what Bob's really referencing is the 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 buzz phrase of present responsibility. And present responsibility is a term in government contracting that signifies a contractor has the appropriate business ethics, compliance necessary to conduct business with the government. Because the government doesn't want to conduct business with just everybody. They want folks that have the right integrity, have the right compliance programs, uh, the right programs, the right training. Um, so it's, we're gonna, I know we're gonna focus on, on, on fraud issues, False Claims Act issues, criminal compliance matters. 
but it's much broader than that. And, and, and the practical uh, effect of it is that you can be really suspended or debarred for just about anything. Um, we've, had situ we've seen situations where folks that failed to perform on a contract and were terminated for default faced suspension and debarment for, for those failures. So it's in terms of what the government's looking for, there's not just one sort of thing where you can check the box and say you're protected. It's really a comprehensive set of programs, culture, that's aimed towards being ethical and compliant. Bob, do you have some other examples too? I mean, he, he talked about the, the one example, of course, that you know somebody was terminated for for default and was suspended. Do you have any other examples that you've seen recently that has kind of been on the uptick as to where you're seeing the suspension and debarment? Yes, I would say in the last five years, um, the area of uh, small disadvantaged business abuse is a is a high priority now. In Absolutely. years past. This is something that was largely kicked over to the Small Business Administration and others who dealt with those programs more specifically than, say, the contracting components. Um, and in recent years, uh, Congress and others have um, come to the agencies and asked them to pay greater attention to this area. And accordingly, you see now uh, many agencies that in the past did not spend too much of their time now scrutinizing after the fact in many cases whether those contracts were legitimately managed, whether they were legitimately um, uh, won. And in many cases where the numbers and the mathematics do not line up, mm -hmm. the accounting doesn't line up, right. many of those cases are now being translated right into false claims and directly to the SDO action uh, offices. Let's, and let's, let's touch on that. Before we get into actually some of the slide deck that we have, anything of like that, and, and we bring up false claims a lot, let's, let's do the definition of what a false claims is for the audience for that matter. What would, I mean, Bob or Gungeon, I'm sure you guys are both experts in this area, so you can you know, weigh in on it. Let's talk about what, is a, what triggers a false claim. What, what, would be, what would constitute a false claim for that matter? Just, I know there's you know, the three underlying items that really hold to a false claim, but let's right. discuss what they are. Right, so, so, so a false claim is, is any time you're submitting something to the government for payment that you're not entitled to. And it may be easy to, to talk about it with examples. For instance, if you have a contract to provide labor support services to the government, and you have a person that only worked 10 hours, but on their timesheet they put they worked 40 hours. You know they didn't work those 40 hours, but you say, eh, what's the big deal? I'm gonna get the money from the government. I'm gonna pay my worker his 40 hours. Everybody's gonna be happy, I'll make my profit. That's, that's a false claim because you've now submitted something seeking money for something you know you're not entitled to. Right. And that may be an oversimplistic example, but it's still one that I think you would see is is not all that rare even today. And that, that basically falls into the basic tenet of overcharging, right? You got so it. Overcharging the federal government, yep. something obviously we, we know we can't do, but there's many facets of overcharging the federal government, there, whereas... There absolutely are, and it, and it goes beyond a, a simple mistake. For instance, if you type an invoice and you put $30 instead of $10, you catch it later on, you fix it, no big deal. But it's where you're at, you, the, there's, there's a little more than just a typo or a, a Scribner's error. It, it, you, you've actually crossed the line to where you're seeking something you know you're not supposed to be seeking. And if I might add on that score, one of the things that we see uh, a great deal of, particularly in the areas of small disadvantaged businesses and with veteran businesses all coming online now, this is an area where we talk about traps that if you're not aware, um, and when it comes to a false claim situation, 
And if, they, if the government should determine later that the contract was not a legitimate small business contract, it's per claim that the calculation of damages is based so that if you made 25 claims before they find out about it, even if it's based on the, a mistake of judgment, that would be 25 separate counts in which they could be treble damages, et cetera. Exactly. So the damages uh, will mount up very, very quickly and could be devastating to a company. And the range of most of those penalties, they go between for the damages, let's say for each false claim is, mm -hmm. it's, what is it, it's between five and 11,000? And that, but that's just the penalty. That's the penalty. That's the penalty. But, but you, the difference between right. What the government's going to do is assert damages. They're going to say, as a result of your false claim, we were damaged. We either overpaid, we paid money that we shouldn't have paid, and so not only do you have to look at the the actual fine amount, but it's the damages as well. And the damages are where you're going to see the numbers add up. So, and, and just so the audience knows too, so they're aware, especially on smaller business levels, right? They're not very, they're not gonna be as, you know, in tune to what the actual regulation law is. We know mm -hmm. that, right? Especially as Bob just said, you know, you have veteran-owned small businesses that are coming into the mix now for the first time, never really touching government contracting, other disadvantaged businesses, things of that nature. As they start to kind of get the set aside and start to grow and they're, they're you know, they're gonna go towards that apex of, you know, eventually breaking out of a small business world, they have to recognize that in the case of, what's this say, um, what actually would be a false claim? It would be each individual invoice would be considered a false claim. So every time you invoice the government and right. you knew, and you either knowingly or maybe you can claim unknowingly, ignorance in some cases still doesn't matter, um, that you cause these false claims, it's per invoice that you could be potentially charged. Exactly so it's right. not, this went on for years, this is something that could add up and that could be a significant amount of money. So they, they need to be very aware of what is the potential liability for making those errors up front and why it's very important for having a very robust compliance program at the beginning. It's great to put one in after 20 years um, and then try to but cover the damage it. damage may already be done. But the yeah. damage is already done and then yeah. you're gonna have to backtrack and look at it, but yeah. that's why there are certain professionals, especially attorneys, things of that nature that practice GovCon and those things that have to you know, set the business up for success because yes. those in the long term, I'm sure as you've both seen over your career, um, the damage could be substantial to the point of bankruptcy or the, co the company's gone. Right. And I think, unfortunately, we've all seen it done. And even if it was something that they thought it wasn't as bad as it is, it always turns out it could be. Yep. That, um, that's right, Scott. Okay. So as we're laying the groundwork here, especially for uh, the viewers online, um, you know, some of the things we were talking about were the slides. So we can kind of illustrate what the trends have been. So as the trends have kind of gone up, especially as Bob mentioned earlier, audits are the new, uh, you know, are the new focus for the government that's leading suspension department, other items. We actually have some slides here, Gunjan. We'll let you, if you want to take the first stab at it, if you want to run yeah. through these two slides, to talk about what we can see as the uptick um, that's been significant over the last several years, especially when it comes to suspension departments, whether it's in the Department of Defense um, or some other areas of government. Absolutely, Scott. And, and for the folks that are attending live in D.C., we've got handouts here. If you didn't get one, uh, let me pass those along. Um, so if you take a look at the first slide, it's the ISDC report to Congress. The ISDC is the Interagency Suspension and Debarment Committee. Bob talked about his involvement uh, with the ISDC earlier in his introduction. The reason you have an ISDC is because agencies don't operate in a vacuum. You don't have a situation 
where the Air Force can take action and not consider the impact of what the Army uh, is when you're dealing with a particular contractor. So there's coordination amongst the agencies whenever there's a suspension or debarment action going on to make sure that everybody knows what's going on, there's coordination, um, there's not duplication of work, uh, ideally. And so that's why you have an ISDC. One of the things the ISDC is charged with is providing a report to Congress that tracks the suspensions, the proposed debarments, and the debarments. So Bob explained a, a little bit earlier about a, a suspension. So, so a suspension is essentially where the government, boom, right away, immediately puts you on what's called the system for award management as an excluded party. This is a red flag in the system. You come up as an excluded party if you're suspended. Suspensions are for an indefinite period of time, and it's something that the government does in order to protect its interest. It believes that something is going on with the contractor or individual, and it is immediately necessary to prevent them from doing any government contracting work. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about a, a suspension. Um, uh, I, suspensions typically will be for a year to 18 months. They can be extended and, and go on in longer cases, in some cases. Um, but what a, what a suspension does is it allows the government to do its investigation, do its homework, and determine whether it should move into a proposed debarment state and ultimately debarment, or whether or not it should be um, ultimately lifted. A proposed debarment is uh, a debarment action that's commenced. So, so what the regulations provide is that a proposed debarment starts out and gives the contractor or an individual an opportunity to respond. Now you have that with the suspension as well. And there's not a lot of a practical difference between a suspension and a proposed debarment. Because when an agency issues a proposed debarment, the hammer comes down right away as well. You're immediately put on the system for award management as an excluded party as well. So when you're talking about an actual practical effects, there's not much of a difference. And then ultimately, uh, depending on the response, what the agency decides, it can be a, a, a debarment, which for a fixed period of time, typically three years, though it can be shorter or longer, depending on the circumstances of a case, uh, a, a contractor or an individual is, is barred from doing work with the government. So if you take a look at the slide and you look from 2009 to 2014, you'll see a trend. You'll see a clear trend where it's upward. A little bit of an anomaly when you get into 2010 to 2011, a little bit of a higher jump for that year and then sort of back down and, and, and resuming sort of a steady trend. But the, the, the takeaway from this slide is that suspensions are up, proposed debarments are up, and debarments uh, altogether are up as well. And it's not just at any one agency that they're up. We're seeing this trend across all the agencies. Um, uh, there are certain agencies, um, I would say uh, EPA, Air Force, GSA, um, that, that tend to be more common and, and, and more out there in terms of uh, uh, public um, uh, news about suspensions and debarments. So, so you'll see those. But we're seeing a lot of other agencies enter the game as well. Um, uh, ones that you typically haven't seen a lot of suspension debarment actions coming out of, the civilian agencies. So it's really an across-the-board trend upwards. Now if we go to the next slide, 
that breaks down the DOD suspension and debarment actions from 2011 to 2015. Again, if you sort of follow it through, uh, with the exception of the Air Force, which you've seen a little bit of, of, uh, of a decrease over the last few years, um, the other agency, the other defense agencies have had a clear upward trend for both suspensions, proposed debarments, and debarments. Um, it's, it's not uh, surprising that we sort of see and break out these uh, DOD numbers um, because the Department of Defense has the largest federal budget. So that's where we would expect uh, logically to see most of the actions. And um, Dustin mentioned earlier that uh, we were supposed to have another panelist, Diz Locaria, and I want to make sure to give him credit and thank him for compiling these slides. Um, and, and we're sorry he couldn't be with us today. Uh, along those lines, and then I'm going to kind of bring it over to Bob. What? So we touched on it earlier, but what are the reasons for the increase? What are the reasons that we see it? I mean, he talked about certain trends. What's pushing those trends to go into those levels of well, actually, we see continual yeah. increase in DOD? If, and, it's, and it's, again, it's the trends across the board. The other agencies are coming, coming in, into this game as well that had not been traditionally. Um, back in 2008, in fact, just as I was preparing to retire, Congress passed uh, provisions of the National Defense Authorization Act for 2009, one of those provisions uh, strengthened the chair of the ISDC, and another required that the Office of Management and Budget, the executive branch, report to the Congress annually uh, on the activities of the agency. Not insignificantly, that report includes information not only about how many actions you do take, but if a referral is made, why you do not take an action. Um, if you were to look back into 2000, uh, to 1981, the original hearings, you would find if you compared the original um, Inspector General report, which was essentially a report card, um, if you compared the numbers then and you compared the numbers in 2008, you would have found that m with a few exceptions, the few agencies that were active were still active and the ones that had not been active were still not active. And as a result of that, Congress demanded an annual report card on the agencies and in fact, the first report card was not issued by my successor, uh, I, I'm sorry, by my, 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 my successor in either the first or second year. So in 2011, exactly when uh, Gunjan mentioned, you saw that major jump. I think the reality is most agencies were trying to get something in the harper to report to Congress so that they were not going to be called before the oversight committees. And there, after, once the initial report was made and everybody took a deep breath, you see things scale back just a little bit. But the increase is there because everyone is being held accountable. So this is a perfect example of the way our system works. Congress is holding the executive events accountable because Congress is dissatisfied that the executive branch is not making use of this management tool that's very powerful, very inexpensive to them, mm -hmm. and very, very effective in bringing about a change in contract or behavior. And let me just add um, to, to Bob's comments, Congress very much knows about suspension and debarment and uh, is, is very much checking the executive branch on these, uh, uh, on these procedures. Um, and just to give you an example, there are situations we've seen 
where Congress, uh, members of Congress, will actually write to agencies and say, I read about in the news involving this company, this they did something wrong. Why hasn't this company yet been suspended or debarred? So, so it's, it's a very much you can have a political component to these actions. Um, keeping that in mind, before, so we're looking at as a whole, um, you know, we're talking about suspension and debarment, how, it, how it's affecting everybody. What usually is the way in? I guess when I say that is what is causing audit? What is causing, you know, not to get off the beaten path here, but I know people are going to ask that question. We're going to go down a little bit. What are the main kind of, um, I guess, triggers for suspension of debarment to begin, for that matter? What would, what would be the way in for the government to say, hey, there's something wrong with this particular company? Or, hey, what, you know, what did we find in this report? Normally, what, what would be some of the triggers that would lead to, let's say, audit or lead to some type of investigation, whether it goes up to the Department of Justice or wherever it's going to go? What would be those causes, for that matter, uh, in order to start that process? If Bob, if you want to jump, or Gungeon, whoever. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't I start, Scott? Um, I think one of those triggers is is something that um, probably strikes uh, a little fear into the hearts of contractors. It's a term called a whistleblower. Um, it's it's folks within an organization that know of a problem. Well, uh, under federal law, there are key tam. You have the ability to become what's a key tam relator and essentially bring an action on behalf of the government. Uh, to re to remedy any 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 wrongdoing, any false claims that you see, there's a financial incentive to do so for that whistleblower. So I think a, a, one of the ways that we typically see these matters get to the government is somebody finds out in their organization that something is going wrong, and they it, it could follow many different paths, but they may try to go within the the company, fix the problem, not get anywhere, and feel that it's their duty. To, to raise the issue with the government, or they may be uh, looking at the financial uh, incentive, component incentive to it. And because of the whistleblower kind of provision there, the actual person who, the employee who does the whistleblowing is essentially protected regardless of any type of retribution. That's right. There are, there are uh, anti-retaliation um, uh, provisions uh, to, to federal whistleblower laws, and, and, and so, so the, the, they will count on, on not being retaliated against. Um, and, and so what, what you'll find is that they will make a report to the government. And uh, to an uh, uh, agency suspending to borrowing official, correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, but a report of somebody on the inside seeing something going wrong and telling an agency about it I, I gets a lot of attention because it's, it's, it's got the details. Um, it, I, I think suspending to borrowing officials always consider the source and that there may be a, a, a deteriorating relationship, maybe an um, employer-employee feud, but that grabs the, the attention of a suspending to borrowing official and, and can lead to um, investigations. That's correct. I would say that I, I would join in that. I think many of our uh, most important leads came to us from a disgruntled employee, didn't get a uh, a bonus or a paycheck or somebody got a promotion over them or they simply left the company for some other reason and later felt that they were safe to bring information forward. Um, but when you say someone is a disgruntled and they, and they bring this matter forward, the vehicle for most of this is actually through um, the Inspector's General Office. In 1978, 
the Congress with the Inspector General Act, uh, actually it was 1973, I suppose, the Inspector General Act 78 um, created seven inspectors general for key agencies of the government. Since then, we have had a tenfold increase of statutory inspectors general. So today we have 73. It's very important to realize that inspectors general, while they are assigned to an agency, they do not report to the agency. They are created by Congress, as Scott was saying, to oversee that process. And their sole mission is to expose waste, fraud, and abuse, and poor performance. If you look at the IG community, and you look at their mission, and you couple it with the fact that the one thing Congress seems to be in agreement over uh, on over the last 15, 20 years, no matter whose budget you submit, they all include a healthy element of approximately 25% to balance the budget based on elimination of waste, fraud, and abuse. That is the mission of the inspectors general. And so with you, when you add the pressure from Congress, the urgency for balancing the budget, you, uh, everyone in Congress, no matter what party you're in, is for eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse for the taxpayers, and then you put on the report card on top of it, yeah. you've, got, uh, you've got the perfect storm. Has anybody seen, at least recently, before we go into the next topic, has anybody seen over the years, uh, I've seen it actually recently, but I don't know how far it goes down the beaten path when it comes to something with the OIG. We've seen competitors doing anonymous letters to um, against somebody. Mm -hmm. Usually if there's a large bid, something that happens, they sure. lose to them. As you've seen those types of cases where, I mean, I, I, at least I, the only thing I could tell the difference between the two is that one's a very deep, if it's a whistleblower, internal employee, it's a very detailed um, right. <laughs> information report that's given. But when we see externally reported information, we usually see it's broad, it's, you know, yeah. it's somewhat ambiguous, but it does that. And then they're required, though, to check into whatever the report is, correct? Well, you know, Scott, you bring up a great point. Anybody can really make a report, and I think folks receiving the report do very much consider the source. Um, but you can't discount uh, a competitor reporting something against you. I'll tell you an example. One of the uh, uh, suspensions I had uh, a few years ago was uh, it was a prime sub-dispute. My client was the prime contractor. They had engaged a subcontractor. Um, weren't too happy with the way the subcontractor did the work, didn't pay. What would normally be a garden variety contractual dispute between parties. But they had a subcontractor that was on a vendetta. They wanted to get paid. So they wrote letters to everybody, um, uh, and, and including an agency suspending debarring official. Now it turns out that my client had a previous termination for default on their record. So when this sort of notice came in, they asked the question, they said, well, they're not paying their suppliers. They're not paying, or they're not performing on the contracts. What's going on? Let's suspend them and figure it out. So, so yeah, uh, something like a competitor writing a letter can absolutely have an impact. And ultimately, the way that was resolved, that, that, that case was resolved, we were able to show this was a disgruntled former um, the supplier, uh, it was a contractual dispute, it's being handled, and that the termination for default was an anomaly in an otherwise um, uh, flawless record, and, and the suspension was lifted. But you have to go through the process once it starts. And, and you know, in that respect, the, uh, that is a, another good example of a situation where we are now 180 degrees where, from where we were 30 years ago. And the, under the old provisions, under the FAR, without privity of contract between the prime and the sub, 
We did not want as debarring officials to be involved in that dispute. Yeah. It tangles you into a mess. However, Congress had different thoughts about that. And now that privity, that lack of privity of contract is not an obstacle. It is very common to bring this forward to, if you're a disappointed subcontractor, um, to bring that either directly to the debarring official or at least to the contracting officer and expect that they will put the pressure on the prime. And Congress has expected the agencies to intercede on behalf of that because it brings stability back into the procurement system. And so the government is now routinely looking at these issues that come in. Uh, I would agree that they do tend to look at the source and there is still, uh, there's still a reticence to go there. But when the matter is sent to the inspectors general, uh, they tend to not make those programmatic type of decisions. They are there to look at matters uh, including this uh, this area, and this is this is an area on the upswing. So, and that and that's an important point, right? So, everybody, if you're a large business, and of course, if you're in the GovCon game, it's something to be uh, pay attention to, because you, you know there's a very heavy push to work with small businesses. Your small business subcontracting plan, you know, as far as they're raising the goals that they do every year, depending on whatever the agency is, um, you you know certain requirements have small business liaison officers, things of that nature. Your program people, whoever's engaged with them, really need to understand how to manage those individuals. Simply for the fact is, like you know, Gunjan and Mubabu said, those things can lead to these types of suspension and debarment issues um, when they don't really need to. I mean, and, they can be called at going, that level. And going back to your example of the False Claims Act coming into this thing, understand that in the old days we saw situations where it was quite common. For a contractor to win the prime contract to show uh, small business participation, um, but in reality, there were days in the past where contracting offices did not care if the prime kicked the sub off, yeah. and they could then just deal with it. But that's non-competitive awards if it reverses itself with right. a prime, and so there's a there's just a whole suspicion about the whole area, and it doesn't take much to get the government to have to have to look at that subcontract today. Yeah, and again, important thing, especially large businesses and, and with the push in small businesses, things to also recognize the fact that this is going to be, it shouldn't really be an issue in a sense that it should be something that's a matter of business as far as process goes, that um, taking care of your subs and they'll take care of you in that sense, that's right. another thing, which right. kind of leads me into where we're going today, where it comes to avoiding the pitfalls and things of that nature, which is, and it can go to either Bob or, or Gunjo, actually, we'll start with Gunjo and we'll come back to Bob. How can government contractors best avoid becoming a statistic in this situation, in these types of suspension and debarment situations? What are our Absolutely. best practices that we could think about yeah. at this point that yeah. can assist um, whether you're a large or small business to avoid uh, suspension and debarment? Yeah, so how do you avoid becoming one of these numbers on the ISD reports? Guy? Right. Um, and, and again, this is one of those questions that there's no easy one-size-fits-all check-the-box right. answer. Um, what you have to do is make sure that you've got a culture and an ethics and compliance program that satisfies the obligations that you have that, as a company. Different companies, of course, different sizes, different contracts, different obligations. What you have to do is really take a look at what your con contractual obligations are. For, for I know we're going to talk about GSA schedule contracts later, but if you have price reduction clause uh, compliance requirements where you're where you're required to make sure the government gets uh, favorable pricing, do you have a, an accounting and an internal control system that can allow for that? Right. Um, because if you don't, 
then then that's uh, that's going to be viewed negatively uh, for a suspending debarring official, particularly if the action that brought you before them involves a violation of the PRC. Um, it's, so I would say that there's two sort of components to it. One is absolutely cultural. You have to, leaders of an organization have to set an example that from the top down, and it's got to cascade through the organization uh, of doing the right thing. So you can't have a situation where you condone any sort of mischarging, mislabeling, um, false uh, statements, false documents, false invoices, uh, because th that's going to be the quickest way you're going to get hauled in front, of, uh, get suspended uh, or debarred. Um, so, so the cultural uh, part of it is very important, that you set the right tone with the office. And SDOs care very much about the culture within an organization. It, th th they expect, as a baseline, most companies to have policies and procedures, and that's the second piece of it, one being culture. The second is the actual program. But they're going to look beyond that paper. Anybody can come in with a binder full of papers and say, here's our compliance program. They're going to want to look behind that and see how that's actually implemented. Are you providing annual training? Is training covering the risk areas that are applicable to you? For instance, if you do a lot of overseas work, are you complying with the Foreign and Corrupt Practices Act? That's a, that's a danger area for you, and they're going to want to see that you're complying with it. So, so I would say, one, set the right culture. Two, take a look at what your contractual obligations are and revisit and revamp your internal controls to address those risk areas that apply to your contracts. And I, as a, a former suspending and debarring official, I look to four goals of every program. Skunjan has mentioned one of the big mistakes is to try to pick someone else's program and search your name in and think it's going to work for you. Mm -hmm. That almost never works for anyone. Right. In fact, it may actually cause problems. <laughs> so <clears throat> my view is always look at your program. Try to make sure that it's, it fits the size and the type of contracting you're in, et cetera. The four easy words to remember, always review for your program should seek to prevent, detect, report, and respond to misconduct. And if you do nothing more as a small business, if you put something in place that addresses those four areas, I think you will at least give yourself a reasonably good chance of winning the confidence of the debarring official that your heart and your culture is in the right place. So again, I would say all programs, no matter large, small, no matter whether 20313 applies or does not apply, prevent, detect, report, and respond. And if you do those four things, uh, you will be essentially meeting the goals of the FAR for what's expected of a government contractor. And, and let me just add, Scott, the, the government recognizes that uh, organizations have only have so many resources. They don't need you to have the compliance program and the culture that a, uh, a top-tier government contractor organization does. What they want to see, though, is something like Bob said that's tailored to those issues and that is appropriate for your size and your organization. So a lot of a lot of businesses shy away from the compliance work because they feel it's going to be a huge drain on resources. Yes, there's going to be an investment of time, money, and, and other resources, but the dividends that it can pay down the road is is really quite quite beneficial. And and, and companies should take a look at getting it in place when they have the ability to do so. Because if you don't 
sort of the worst situation that you can be in is where you get a suspending and debarring official's letter that says you're either suspended or proposed for debarment or we want it's a show cause um, and you go to an attorney and you say represent me and the one of the first questions is let's talk about your ethics and compliance program well I don't have one well now you've got a real uphill battle right so the and the other part of that is too is that I also think that a lot of the times people don't take it I mean it's interesting commercially speaking if you're coming in from a commercial world into the govcom world they're not recognizing like you said what is required yeah and what it really truly means to say okay you know we want to play in this world now and not thinking that adds ah, a small segment of my business what are those compliance issues it's okay we can go what we've always done and look how much we've grown things of that nature whereas it starts to you know kind of spider web out of control a little bit when it you know uh, whether it's a small contract large contract they have to recognize what they're signing mm -hmm. um, they are you know they are adhering to they're stating the fact that I'm going to follow the regulations that are stating in every single one of these clauses that are inside this you know 98 page document that I assigned and it's great it might be for a million or X amount of dollars but there are a lot of things that are required for that and I think that seems to be yeah. you know I, I mean it's even the, the smallest thing like is read what you sign I mean as far as that's concerned because and then you recognize what is yeah. what is necessary in order to meet those compliance requirements and Scott I would also say that you want to do not confuse formality and informality as being the ultimate criteria. I mean, to the degree that it's more formal, it's usually more reliable. But it also tends to be the more formal systems go with the larger contractors, those who have this, the, the capacity to, to handle that. Um, make sure the thing works. Check it every once in a while. Probably the most important thing they can do, even though it's not required of all contractors, is to do an, uh, a periodic risk assessment. Determine for yourself what are those, what areas do, does this business engage in where we have high risk? Do we hire a lot of uh, uh, lower level workers that might be illegal aliens? Do we deal with environmental compliance? Do we have permits? Concentrate your few dollars in those areas where your highest vulnerability is. And again, you will then hit the four areas of, on the goals because what's immediately evident, if you go to the FAR, and you try to look at what the components of a program are, you won't find them because the government doesn't require you to do anything. In fact, when I was a debarring official, one of the best things we could do if we wanted to eliminate a contractor was to have the contractor come in and say, tell us what you want us to do and we're willing to implement it. And our answer was, if we have to tell you how to run your business, you're in worse, we're in worse shape with you than we thought. Right. So be very careful of asking the government to do your job for you. Right. First, they won't know how to do your job better than you will. And secondly, if you ask them, they'll tell you. And that, and that, brings, up, um, I mean, that brings up another point when we look at. So let's say we're on the other side of the fence. Let's say we have a contractor who feels that the suspending or debarment official, you're in the position already, we're already gone down that road, there's nothing, you know, you're past almost the point of no return. What happens if they feel like they, if the suspension and debarment official has the facts objectively wrong? What are their, are their remedies? What do they have in that situation? What could they possibly do? Yeah, so, so Scott, under the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, there is a set of procedures that if you're either suspended or proposed for debarment, you have the opportunity to respond. You can respond in writing, you can respond in person. Um, you absolutely have to avail yourself of 
that ability to to respond. And so if if a, and and it happens um, sometimes, suspending debarring officials only get one side of the story, be it from a government agent or or a somebody making the report. And of course, every every story has multiple sides. So what they would want to do, what you would want to do, is work with your counsel work with the folks in your organization that know about the matter to objectively lay out what the actual facts are. And, and think, think about it from a, a rational perspective. If, if the, the, the dispute is whether you defrauded the government out of $125,000 or $150,000, if you're gonna walk in with the defense of, of I, it was 125 instead of 150, you've already lost that matter. Right. Um, it's, it's, but, but if the facts are, that's not us, we didn't defraud you. It's another company with the same name. The invoices are different, and right. uh, we're different companies. Demonstrate that. Show the paperwork. Um, so, but one thing you want to that I'd like to point out is when you're dealing with suspending debarring officials, you are not dealing with a court. You it is an administrative matter, as Bob mentioned when he was describing what suspension and debarment is. So you're not going to be in a formal court setting. Suspending debarring officials have a lot of discretion. So what you want to do is go in there respectfully um, and, and explain to them why the facts are wrong. You don't want it to be a situation where you're just sending inflammatory materials uh, over the fence saying, you got this wrong, how could you guys not know what's going on? Rather, make a rational, reasoned approach as to how the facts are wrong and, and, and if you've got contemporaneous documents, meaning the documents from the time the event occurred, that support the, the, the basis that the facts are wrong, submit that. One of the most troubling areas for a debarring official and for counsel representing the contractor is when a client comes to you or a matter comes to your attention in which they've already agreed to plead guilty to a certain offense. It's not unusual, we all know it here, for you to have to deal with this reality when they overcharge your client with a number of, and they have to deal with the reality of what it's going to cost to enter into a plea deal with the government. The government may, may issue a written statement of the facts. Mm -hmm. Scrutinize those statements of fact, because when you go before the SDO, which will be almost certain in light of a, a criminal conviction on a government contract, you will have to live with those facts for the official record. Absolutely. This is one area of practice that I saw seldomly used uh, by counsel, but it is something that counsel need to consider. Understanding, as you said, SDOs are not well informed when that matter comes to their attention. 90% of the cases were written by the agent, excluding all the things that didn't favor conviction, and you get a, a, a series of reports and statements that the con your, your client has never even seen. Mm -hmm. So if you don't contest it, you won't see it. But when you have a situation where you cannot contest what we would call the material facts that would entitle you to dispute whether the event occurred. Always make use of giving your side of the story by providing context. You may not be entitled to a fact-finding hearing, but you're always entitled to, a, entitled to that presentation for the public record. And the ultimate issue is not whether, in fact, you have a criminal conviction. It's whether you are presently responsible, as Gungeon said. So make use of that opportunity, because it may be your only one, to set the record straight as to what you believe happened, and if you can put it in the context argument, so at least the SDO can understand the context of the conviction and why it's there. Whether you like it or not, you have just given the debarring official critical information that they ultimately need to evaluate. 
you, present responsibility. You have, but there's there's a way to use that to your advantage too. Yes. Now, if you've actually accepted responsibility in the in the criminal courts for whatever action there is, you can then turn around and use that to the SDO to demonstrate present responsibility. You can stand up and say, we're the type of organization that recognizes our faults and shortcomings. We accepted responsibility. We're paying restitution. Uh, we're we're making things right. So you've got the ability to use that as, as a uh, positive for you. So in using things in, for your advantage, as we were just kind of talk about, how could the no. FAR be used in your advantage in these types of proceedings? Yeah, so the FAR includes what's called mitigating factors for suspension and debarment. Use those, know those, um, and, and, and they, there's, a, there's a whole, whole list of them in the FAR, and they range from things like you have appropriately dealt with the individual that caused the circumstances to occur. You have strengthened your compliance programs. Um, you have uh, accepted responsibility. Um, those are all mitigating factors in the FAR. What you want to do is absolutely avail yourself of the ability to respond to the agency, do not ignore notices. I mean, I mean, you would think that that's an obvious um, uh, sort of thing to, to talk about, right. but I can't tell you how many times um, uh, you'll see debarment uh, notices published on agency websites. We notified so-and-so, they never responded. As a result, we're, we're moving forward with the debarment. Um, do not sit on it. Um, talk to counsel early on in the process. Um, even SDOs recognize that companies may need additional time. The FAR gives you 30 days to respond. The, the SDOs recognize that in certain cases you may need more time. They are willing to give you and your counsel that additional time if you need it. Keep in mind, though, that you're still excluded. You're on SAM, so that can have a tremendous impact to business. Right. But if you need the additional time, ask for it. But do not sit on it and then say, when we get the facts together, we'll go in 90 days later. That may already be too late. And if I can go back to one of your slides, the first slide, and you look at that 2014 data, look at the number of proposed debarments at 2241. Look at the number of actual debarments, 1929. Do you honestly believe the government could have gotten through that many cases from the, act, the number of agencies that are very active with this business? No. The reason why those numbers are so large are because small, disadvantaged, middle-sized businesses, by and large, do not respond to the notice. Yeah. The worst thing you can do is not respond. A very healthy, substantial number of those that I've added to the list every day get on the list because the debarring official has nothing to contest the raw conviction with or the information presented by the agent. So when you exclude that and you look at the number, if you had visibility into the actual success rate, for those that contest, you will see there's a fairly good rate of either administrative agreements or yep. non-debarments as compared to those who choose not to challenge. So that's exactly right, Bob. And so, so step one is, of course, show up. Show up right. in the game. There you go. Um, <laughs> step two is have your notice be an advocacy piece for you. Um, your notice should not be, and, and this is where you've got to make sure you find the right team to respond with, the right counsel, the right consultants. If your notice is, we already pled guilty to this, it would be double jeopardy for you to suspend or debar us, you're not going to get far with that notice. Um, and, and we've seen that. We've, we've, we've seen cases where uh, folks may have tried to have their criminal counsel handle it initially. They're not familiar with suspension debarment. They send a letter like that and the, the um, SDO gets in touch and says, counsel, you may want to advise your client to actually seek uh, 
uh, an attorney that that is more familiar with the process and 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 so second is is have it be an advocacy piece for you so explain what happened explain why you're still presently responsible and that's the what the focus of your notice or what your response has to be why you're presently responsible you can't go back in time and change the actions that led to the uh, suspension or debarment commencing but what you can do is talk about what you've changed since that time why today your organization can be trusted with government contracts. Avail yourself of the FAR mitigating factors. This is not a case where this not, suspension and debarments are not situations where you have to stop in time and you can only rely on what happened previously. If you have not done something, uh, not un- availed yourself of a mitigating factor, but you're able to, for instance, let's say terminating a wrongdoer, mm-hmm. consider doing that. And, 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 and so you can keep continually improving and you should as you prepare your response and avail yourself as many mitigating factors as you can and seriously consider um, an in-person meeting in addition to your written response. Uh, A face-to-face meeting with an SDO goes a long way. They have the ability to see you, understand the impact this has on you. You get to convey that impact and you get to convey sort of why you're presently responsible in a, in a person-to-person setting. So you, you bring up a good point. With mitigating circumstances and mitigating factors, um, we had mentioned the bad agent for that matter, right? Mm-hmm. There's Maybe there's an individual that's caused the issue or specifically caused the issue to be down this position where, you know, uh, that is that has caused whatever this, you know, action has happened. So how should commercial companies handle situations where the key employees are also proposed for suspension and debarment? That is a a tricky situation, particularly with small businesses. Um, It it, it all depends, again, on what led to the action. Um, If you have a situation where you have uh, the president or CEO of a company being charged with being integral to the alleged fraud that started the suspension or debarment matter, um, you have to seriously consider uh, whether or not um, uh, the person can remain in their role as a president or or CEO. Um, And and that's fine for large corporations where they have boards that can make that decision replace. But what do you do if you're a two-person shop and the president and CEO is one of those people? Well, then they've got to make some decisions as to whether they're going to step out. And there's ways that can be done. Uh, there can be a blind trust um, where they deposit their shares in a trust and a trustee operates the organization until these matters are resolved. Um, the government may want to see something like that before they consider lifting the suspension or debarment. So does that work? Is it, have you, I mean, in your experience, have you seen where they have focused on an individual and said, you know what? Regardless of size of business, we know that this is the bad actor in the situation. The rest of the people were, you know, clearly following the letter of the law. We have one individual that's done such a, a, you know, committed, you know, egregious acts of whatever, fraud, things of that nature. And that those people, the government says, if we want to remedy this, if we want some type of answer or we want some type of resolution, this individual needs to go or suspended for if it's an indefinite time or it's 90 days or 30 days or whatever it's going to be is that in my experience i i've found that the government won't 
generally outright tell you that that they don't have the ability okay. to tell you fire this individual. Oh yeah, but, they did but, it one time yeah. in the in that private meeting. In the private meeting, yeah, 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 yeah. But typically, it will become clear from the communications with the agency's office, the agency council, the SDO, yeah. that if the person remains. Uh, in the position that they're in, then that's going to impact present responsibility. Read that situation though very clearly. I will tell you that I have been more impressed over my career, both since since before I left the government and now as a monitor for the U.S. government. Uh, I will tell you that there seems to be a growing tend toward uh, being impressed with a company that shows some degree of loyalty where, let's say, the situation was not very egregious, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, where you have a plea agreement entered for the purpose of saving the company, so where you need the government contractor, or the person brings a special expertise to the government's value, too. In those situations, and particularly and especially when you have a situation where you're suspended pending completion of the outcome of the proceeding, because you don't know where that matter may go. And if that matter never goes to a criminal conviction, which some, uh, quite a few don't, and that employee was terminated. Remember, you as government counsel or you as counsel to the government contractor do not represent the individual. That individual may very well be suing your employer and the company later. So I would say always take your cue from Uncle Sam. What does Uncle Sam do when this happens? They don't fire employees. Sometimes they don't fire them after they've been convicted, unfortunately. But nevertheless, there is this tendency to expect more from the contractor than the government itself. Use the same vehicles that they use. Place them on some form of administrative leave. With or without pay is not, uh, is not as much an issue. But place them in some interim status where they are walled off until the matter is concluded. That at least builds some safety and some protection for the contractor because what I've seen many times is in order to resolve a matter at the suspension stage, contractor fires and terminates the employee only to have the whole matter disappear without even a criminal conviction yeah. and then the company is facing a lawsuit from the employee so just be careful and make sure again your counsel is is reading the circumstance and use the right wall or the right separation the right vehicle to protect right. the government's interest ultimately remind the government that as long as the government's interest is protected whether the person is disciplined, fired, demoted, that really should not be the call of the SDO. And sometimes there's compassion that comes into play. I had one just very recently in which an individual uh, in his upper 50s, uh, sole, sole supporter of the family with children and others that are in serious needs, uh, or a paraplegic uh, meta, uh, a son that had returned from Afghanistan, etc. Debarring officials are businessmen. They are not in the court before a judge worrying about sentencing some thug. Remember to use that vehicle. Make sure the debarring official understands the circumstances and what will be the payment. And if you can find a suitable alternative, by all means, offer that first before you jump to uh, firing somebody. Sometimes these are teachable moments. Let's, we all make mistakes. Absolutely. And one of the biggest things to do when you're dealing with individuals in a small business setting where maybe the son or the wife or the husband did something that they should not have done is that we all learn from mistakes from time to time. We all make them from time to time. But if you just debar somebody or just throw them out of the company, where will they show up next? The government has no way, at least at the moment, of trying Try, tracking down that person. So it's better to have a person within the company and then offer as an alternative that the company is now watching this individual and think about it. 
the company is now on the hook. So you offer the government actually more security by walling them inside than by throwing them out in the street. So just think of ways. Think outside the box a little. Don't jump for the easy, quick fix firing the individual. Think of other ways to convince the government this is a better deal for you, for the taxpayer. So we're going to switch gears a little bit now, and those are those are great answers. We're going to focus a little bit on... Um, well, actually, Scott, can I just jump in? Does yeah, anybody here have any questions about this before we switch topics? When does a debarment or a suspension action begin? Yeah. Uh, the question was, when does a suspension or debarment action begin was the question we received. So it begins when they provide the notice to you. So they are under the FAR, they are required to actually give you a notice. It generally comes in the form of a letter that says notice of suspension or notice of proposed debarment. That's what starts the clock on your 30-day response time under the FAR. But in today's environment, it used to be 20 years ago, the first question was, did you stick your head up out of the hole and go to the government, or do you allow the government to get you? In the old days, it, the, the statistics were on your side. If you just lay low, nothing's going to happen. Right. Today, it's the opposite. So the process can begin. If you have a situation, let's take a contract that's heavily dependent on the government contracts. Let's say you're facing a situation that's either receiving political attention, public attention, if there's going to be a prosecution, or something that makes it highly unlikely the government agency will not learn about it. Now you have to strategically de decide whether you should go what we call, it's not written in the rules, they don't want you to do it, but take it upon yourself to enter into a pre-notice engagement. You go to the government first in order to prevent them and build a record so that when that IG agent or that uh, FBI agent's interview sheets come into your record and yes. tells you everything, that you've got something broader, uh, you, got, you need a denominator and in this math, okay? That, that's <laughs> Otherwise, they're making cookies, <laughs> okay? That's an excellent point, um, and, and, and so, so, yeah, so the notice is what officially starts the process. But when you, so, Government contractors are required to comply with what's called the mandatory disclosure rule. Certain instances of, of uh, civil FCA violations or criminal violations, significant overpayments have to be reported to the government. Um, and anytime you're making any sort of that mandatory notice to the government, consider what that looks like when it gets to the SDO. If it's going to attract their attention, when you're sending that notice over, absolutely makes sense to consider approaching the SDO proactively. That allows your counsel to control the story uh, from the get-go. Let's touch on that quickly. Let's talk about mandatory disclosure again, because it's very important. I think it's, it's often misinterpreted, especially on what the requirements are from the vendors. The vendors don't, I see it day in and day out whenever I go and do a site visit or if I'm supporting somebody, a lot of people don't believe that they feel mandatory disclosure applies to them. What's, can we talk about, what are this, this, let's talk about mandatory disclosure in general. Sure. What are the basis of mandatory disclosure? Why is it there? What, what are the responsibilities of the, um, the vendor? Because as we know, that will, like you just said, as yeah. you explained, that can eventually lead to going up to the suspension department official, you know, that mandatory disclosure can lead to whatever the False Claims Act, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So can we talk, let's yeah. focus both sides on so, mandatory disclosure. So the mandatory disclosure rule really comes from from two parts of the FAR. One is FAR Clause 5220313, which is the clause of Contractor Code of Ethics um, and Business Conduct. Um, and, and that's a clause that applies if you've got a contract over $5 million 
and 120 days in performance. Just went up. Oh, 5.5. Thank you for the uh, inflationary adjustment. Right. Um, but, um, but what that clause requires is if you have credible evidence, and so it's not just a mere suspicion, but you've got actual credible evidence, and, and that term is, is, is in flux because it means different things to different people. Uh, but if you've got credible evidence of certain criminal violations, for instance, uh, bribery, gifts, gratuities, um, or a civil false claims act violation, uh, significant overpayment, you've actually got to make a notice. Now, the terms of the contract, or the terms of the clause actually provide who notice is, is given to. Typically, it's the contracting officer and the OIG, uh, agency OIG. But a lot of companies think that, oh, I don't have contracts at that threshold, the 5.5 million, um, so I'm going to be able to get out of this uh, because I don't have to comply. It's not in my contracts. Well, in FAR subpart 9.4, which, which is the FAR provisions that deal with suspension and debarment, there is an independent, uh, so in that part of the FAR, there's an independent basis for the government to suspend or debar you for failing to make those notices of credible evidence of the criminal violations or the, the Civil False Claims Act. So for the government, they don't even have to get to the underlying merits of what happened. If you fail to make that mandatory disclosure, that's enough for a suspension or debarment. Okay. And then we've already seen cases coming forward based on the failure to report. And this is very important because if you otherwise, let's just say, are not convicted of a fraud, let's just say that was the suspicion. If you're not convicted of a fraud, the old basis for the debarment was the commission of the fraud. Mm -hmm. But without a criminal conviction, that was very unlikely to happen. Now, it's irrelevant whether there's ultimate merit to your investigation. It's whether you timely disclose. And there's your other problem. Hmm. Uh, Gunjan already mentioned the flexible stand of credible evidence when we wrote the rule. We tried several terms, and I don't think credible evidence was any better than the original uh, terms used, but the other one is reasonable period of time. So is it six months or six days? Is it 10 weeks? There's no standard there that you can actually apply. So as, as, you, as, as you say as co corporate counsel, you're looking for more comfort in your factual basis before you disclose. Uh, you only have so much time and no one knows exactly where, where that time is. It'll be the judgment ultimately of some agent, perhaps, that goes to the SDO that says, we looked at this, we were the first to knocking on the door. You said, oh no, we knocked first. Yeah. He's not going to get into that. The agent may come in and say it was not timely disclosure. That, that, and there you'll, have, you'll be facing a debarment action anyway. You, you got it, Bob. And, and again, Scott, it's a situation where you have to look at what's the work that you're doing. Right. Um, I had a situation where we represented a company that had uh, a product that involved safety on fighter jets. And something went wrong with this product that invoked a, a disclosure requirement under the mandatory disclosure rule. It was decided that notice should be made sooner rather than later because this was a safety issue and we did not want there to be a situation where somebody's health and safety was compromised. Uh, whereas if you've got something that may be a little more accounting related, not necessarily as, uh, as imminent um, as a safety issue, you might have get, get a little more leeway in taking some more time to figure out all of the circumstances before you go in and make that uh, notice. And I'm glad you mentioned the safety issue because that's, the safety issue is sort of a, um, is a hidden element here. 
on two fronts. Not only the mandatory disclosure, which I'm glad you mentioned that, that is a, a, a good trigger. If it's a $10 fraud or a you know a thousand dollar fraud, but it can result in some pilot's plane going Life, down, yeah. it's far more important than a fifty million dollar fraud on a ten billion dollar contract that's just some equipment. Same is true when you evaluate suspensions. When I trained federal agencies and prosecutors, I told them not to focus. If you want a suspension, I always trained, don't focus only on the money. Focus on the impact of the fraud, not the fraud itself, and you're much more likely to put a debarring official in a no-win situation in which they must issue the suspension. So translate it. A good example was EPA had suffered some uh, fraud on our laboratory analysis in analyzing sites to go on to the national priority list. It was less than $10,000 worth of fraud. But if the community cost us $7 million to buy and excavate and clean, that $10,000 of fraud speaks volumes. No. That's the present presentation an SDO will issue okay. a suspension, not on the $10,000. So you as counsel should be aware of that and use it defensively as well. If it's not an issue of fraud, mitigate your your fraudulent claims against that as far as the suspension is concerned. But if it is present, use it in determining whether and when to move forward on both mandatory disclosure or pre-notice engagement if you want to beat the agent to the debarring official's door. Again, nothing buys you certainty in any of this. Mm -hmm. You are dealing with tea leaves, debarring officials, agency cultures, um, politics and government if it's feeding from the outside, and sometimes be aware, an early suspension may very well give the prosecutor just what he wants in a difficult case of math, science, and anything else, wherein you'll be willing to come in and plead guilty to something in order to get the debarment and suspension. In that case, your colleague and mine uh, from years past at Venable, uh, John Pavlik, used to say, you'll find out very quickly suspension and debarment's the tail that wags the dog. That's right. That's, and and what, what I think a lot of companies may not realize is in their, uh, when they are facing a criminal matter, um, they want to get it resolved quickly and, and as beneficial as it is to them. Um, uh, the DOJ may not be focused on suspension department because that's an agency has to bring that action. And so the company may not be thinking this is anything they have to worry about. It's not uncommon to see suspension debarment actions occur years after a company has solved a criminal case. Um, in, in one case I had, uh, there was a FCPA uh, uh, mm -hmm. settlement that was entered into. And it just so happened they were there was news coverage of, of a settlement that had occurred years ago. And a suspending debarring official saw that coverage and said, I didn't know about this. I'm going to issue show cause. Now, they did not actually suspend or propose for debarment immediately. They issued what was caused a show cause letter that said, tell me what this was about and tell me why you're presently responsible today. So they, the, the SDO afforded them the opportunity to do that without having um, uh, them be an excluded party. But, but the, the in-house counsel for, for that client was absolutely amazed that years after this was settled, to everybody, what they thought was everybody's liking, um, that this could happen. And so companies, if you are engaging in any sort of settlement agreement or pleading guilty, consider that you are going to face suspension of debarment and, and prepare for that. So Bob was saying earlier, have the statement of facts work to your benefit ultimately in a later suspension of debarment case, 
but if you're pleading guilty or you're settling, consider that proactive notice. So as as we kind of kind of round this about or kind of kind of bring everything together, I mean, the theme starts at this. We know the end of this is suspension and debarment, right? That's what's going to be, we say, the, the grave part, unfortunately. Yeah. The cradle part starts in internal controls, right? Yeah. I mean, as far as we're concerned, the way to avoid, I mean, if you can, if anything, is to, to put good internal controls in place um, and with internal, you know, within the company, uh, make sure they're checked, make sure there's risk mitigation uh, plans that are activated throughout, you know, you, maybe how many times a year you want to do it. But definitely check. We had touched on it earlier. Bob had some great four points he had pointed out to where you need to look at when you're talking about risk mitigation, especially with internal control. Um, I'll just kind of wrap it up into one point here for both um, Gunjan and Bob is besides things that we've already said, what is the what piece of advice can you impart to any kind of contractors at this point that can implement effective internal controls um, that would be able to, let's say, let's say stop the fire before it starts, if possible? Besides, we talked about ethics. We talked about having those strong programs in place. Um, what are some of the other things that maybe we want to touch on today uh, that are important depending on what you're doing business with as far as the agency goes and what contract vehicles, et cetera? I would say that, you know, one rule of thumb that has been common for those who teach compliance and ethics is to say the tone at the top. I will tell you from monitoring now for eight years, I think the tone at the top, particularly big companies and most sophisticated folks that are, have been government contracting understand that. I will tell you the larger the company goes, the danger is not at the top. The danger is at your line supervisor level, which often gets on. Uh, unaddressed. Mm -hmm. um, these are the these are the individuals, and again, I'm not being critical of people who reach a certain level, but they, you see it in the military, you see it in the government, you see it in private sector. Person works them themselves up. They might be a floor supervisor in a manufacturing plant or something of that sort. They reach a certain level, and they spend the last 15 or 25 years of their career right there. They know everything about everything. They were there before the the recent managers, and they're twice as old as most of them. I did an interview recently, uh, uh, and I was finding that six uh, individuals, I did interviews to test the training compliance program, and I was finding six months to a year, everybody knew who their compliance officer was, their ethics, they knew how to find it, they knew what was in the code, they paid attention to these things. You went to the upper management, they knew exactly what they had written on the paper. But you went to some of those line medium supervisors, the ones that see those individuals every day, and they couldn't tell me. And so I say, be careful. Make sure that it's not just the top and the bottom that's getting the word, because when you're under administrative agreement or the monitor comes out to check, the word today is check the line supervisor, because that is the one who translates the, your code of conduct into day-to-day -day operations on an everyday basis. And in some of those cases, those, those workers never see the front office at all. And, and Scott, let me just um, uh, uh, quickly um, uh, touch on something uh, mm -hmm. Bob's uh, mentioned several times, administrative agreements. So th in the spectrum of not to not s suspend or debar or to suspend or debar, there's a middle ground. Um, so, so the agency can enter into what's called an administrative compliance agreement with an organization that says, we feel we have grounds for suspending or debarring the company, but we will agree not to do that 
if you, the company, will do these certain things. And it could be anywhere from strengthen your ethics compliance program, employ a monitor to oversee your improvement of your ethics compliance program, implement additional internal controls. And they'll say, in exchange for you doing those things, we won't uh, go forward with the suspension department. And that's what Bob has talked about with an administrative agreement. Um, to go back to your your question of, of what can the companies do, I think the other thing that, that the tone at the top is, is absolutely right. Um, going back to the one, the culture, two, the program, um, uh, the, the tone at the top is, is very important, but you've also got to make sure you keep the lines of communication open. Let the government know about your compliance program. There's no reason to keep a compliance program or compliance culture hidden. Share it. Share, of course, it should be shared with your employees. They should be living and breathing that sort of compliance culture. But the second piece of it is tell the government. Let them know, look, we've got all these great internal controls, all these checks and balances. I know of situations where some of the larger contractors have gone in to the SDO's office, not for any sort of proactive notice or anything, but just to say, hey, we're here, here's what we're doing on the compliance front. We want to be a partner and a trusted advisor to the government, so we just want that engagement with you. And, and from the comments I've heard from SDOs that have participated in those meetings, they've absolutely loved that sort of engagement. Everybody likes to be proactive. And that's a huge positive to the company because if something should ever go wrong, the SDO already has an impression, a favorable impression. This is someone that's been trying to do the right thing, so what happened here is an anomaly. So, they, go ahead, Bob. No, I was going to say, it may very well, that's very interesting. It's not something that I have seen a lot of in my own practice, but I'm glad to hear that some of that is going on. But it may be the very thing that causes them to give you the show cause letter instead of a notice of proposed department. Exactly. So one of the other things, too, I'd, I'd also bring up, at least from my experience, and um, is, and, and it kind of falls along the same line in term controls, test your systems. Um, that's the most important thing. When I say test systems, I mean literally test your systems depending on what they are. If it's going to be finance-related, if it's going to be when it's talking about labor rates, testing things as far as if you have a cost point system, make sure they're working properly. Make, especially when we talk, because we're going to get into GSD schedules here in a second, because I know it's going to impact the majority of uh, large businesses out there if they're working with the federal government. Test the systems to see if they work. If you're responsible for monitoring time and material contracts and you have to segregate time and material, make sure your system works. Mm -hmm. Test it. I don't care if you, if, even if you outsource it, which we've seen a lot of times, especially on the smaller business side, it doesn't absolve you of the fact that you really still need to test your system to make sure things are being properly monitored and segregated. You have to make sure that the cost is being properly monitored, especially, again, GSA schedules. You're always required, of course, to provide, you know, unless you have certain deviations, but you're required to provide what is the lowest price equal to, you know, your best commercial price in the situation. You know, things like that, price reduction clause. You need to be able to test your system to prove that you are actually monitoring these things because let me tell you something, GSA is going to look for it. IFF on GSA schedules, we know how to test your system because if it doesn't work and you can't reconcile it, GSA is going to come look and test it eventually anyway under the, what the new site visit regulations are that started last year in June. Those are the things when I say test system and even in your human resource systems, wherever your area of expertise are going to be just for internal controls, I just from my own experience, I would say just test those systems. If you don't get a good response, that's the time to fix it. I mean, test it now before you have some government official which they're doing their job is standing over your shoulder saying, show me, show me what the system does. Cause you don't want to be in that position when it fails. 
especially when you've talked up and you're like, you like know, Bob said, hey, I got a great policy here, but in fact, it doesn't mean anything because it doesn't work in act. And you know, when you actually implement it and put it in action, so kind of keep that in mind. They will demand a look behind the curtains. I had one just recently go before the Navy. They brought us in. The contractor brought us in to help the Navy understand they were taking this serious. And before the Navy would even hold yeah. another meeting, they said, go out there, and I want you to test everything they told me in this meeting. And so test the system yourself, just as Scott said. Um, so keeping that in mind, um, as we move into the, the final part of the questions, we're moving along, because um, I know we're getting close on time here. Um, and I kind of just touched on it too. We were going to talk about GSA schedule compliance and pitfalls when it comes to suspension and debarment and how it can lead to it. Um, I'll just we'll just quickly touch on as far as advice and what are those issues, um, Gungeon, and I, and I can just start it off quickly. Again, price reduction clause, basis of award, things of those nature. You're required by regulation and law to state and follow what is in the solicitation when you go ahead and you submit your GSA schedule. Things should be accurate and true. You should. Uh, propose what is, of course, uh, as far as the starting point of your pricing negotiation, what is the lowest price that is equal to or better than what you offer commercially. Um, those are the basis of your award. Yes, you are. Uh, the one thing I will say, it doesn't have to do with suspension and department, but just keep in mind, you do have the opportunity at that time to absolutely take advantage of your commercial sales practices format, which allows you to write in deviations and concessions and things of that nature that specifically outlines ability let's say market penetration or you're saying if you're a software tester beta testing beta testing things of that nature that allows you commercially to lower price it to provide lower prices in that market than what the government may provide you provide frequency you provide have rate of I'm sorry rate of frequency how often does it happen when does it happen the circumstances those are very important a lot of people get that CSP they leave that blank and when the government official comes in and takes a look when they're doing as they say it's the IG and the IG wants to take a look and they're gonna say let me see your commercial sales practices oh you say that you never sold lower but I found so many things after I tested your system let's take a look at the deviations if you listed any most people don't have it on there so just to start the point of what we're saying and as we talk about those things those are just overall just things that you should look at if you have a blank CSP and all commercial customers is your um, you know <laughs> your base of award customer it's almost close to the kiss of death I mean it doesn't have to be but you're gonna have to have a very robust internal control program in order to make sure those that that works out for you if you don't have that you're probably eventually I'm sure you already have a mentor disclosure if you fall underneath those rules, just from the nature of the business, especially commercially speaking. So um, with that in mind, again, because there are time issues here, is there any advice when it comes to schedules besides all the things that we've touched you that may lead to suspension department with GSA schedules, Gungeon or Bob, anything you want to, as far as mitigating these information? Yeah, know? I think uh, one additional thing, we've focused a lot on pricing and costs, but um, uh, GSA schedule contracts are required to comply with what's called the Trade Agreements Act, Scott. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so if you're providing a product that's got to be either of U.S. origin, the country of origin has to be U.S. or a designated country, and those are countries with which we have trade agreements. Um, uh, such as uh, uh, Mexico, Canada. Um, uh, they do not include countries like China, India, Malaysia, the Philippines. Uh, so if you're selling products on the GSA schedule, you have to make sure your products are TAA compliant. 
thanks CBS for that story, by the way. If anybody didn't see it two weeks ago when they did it on the nightly news, uh, that's what sparked GSA's. Um, I don't know if anybody is selling product here, but that sparked GSA's five-day exercise, saying, "Hey, I don't care if you have fifty thousand products or two products on your schedule, you need to go and verify and re-upload your catalog to prove that your TAA, all your products are TAA compliant." Um, yes, five days to do that, and yes, some contractors actually have hundreds of thousands of products on there. They were required to actually go and certify that under five days. So I'm sure Gungeon and all the other attorneys and counsel had to enjoy what was basically letters that we wrote to everybody asking for a 30-day extension simply because it was impossible to meet that deadline. But um, if anybody didn't catch the story, you could Google it and see how CBS actually cited it, uh, talked about the, I think it was aircraft part uh, that was uh, might have been non-TA compliant. I'm not sure what it was, but uh, it caused a pretty big issue. Um, so as we're going to start to, we're going to close out here because I know we're running out. We'll take um, questions from the audience after we close down the live part of uh, the Q&A and the webinar. Um, I just wanted to actually hand it over to Gunjan, at, not Gunjan, I'm sorry, at Dustin at this time for any type of closing. Sure thing. Um, so I just think I'll move the camera back over to me just barely. So really want to thank all of you, Gunjan, Bob. Scott, you guys, this was fascinating. I think, I think in the audience here, I think we'd all agree I'm seeing lots of people shake their head. Um, really good stuff. If people want to connect with you guys or learn more about your organizations, um, please just tell us, Gunjan, I'll start with you, but just tell us like how they should do that. Absolutely. Um, so I, I'm a partner at Kilpatrick Townsend. Uh, luckily, I am the only Gunjan Talati at Kilpatrick <laughs> Townsend. So if you'll Google me, you'll see my profile come up. My email is gtalati at KilpatrickTownsend.com. Very good. And Bob? And I'm the only Bob Manier at DeBarman Solutions, <laughs> so I guess I can say the same, but you can find my website at www.debarmentsolutions.com, and uh, all my contact information is there. Very cool. Uh, same thing here. Uh, Scott Davidson. I can be found at VetsGSA.com. Feel free to reach out to us on... Uh, website, the uh, contact form, and of course Facebook, Twitter, or any other social media. Yeah, you guys are you guys are active for sure out there. It's a lot of fun. So um, I'm going to close it out by just uh, really wanting to from the entire Dun Brad Street team here. Really thank you guys. Um, if you do want to ever see more of these podcasts or these live streaming, please connect with us. Um, we are D and B B to B on Facebook, on Twitter. On LinkedIn, we're, we're pretty active and, and always looking to help answer business owner questions. So if you have uh, any uh, issues or any thoughts, and, and you know, you, please feel free to share them with us. We'll always be trying to find answers. So with that said, um, Gunjin, Bob, Scott, I really want to thank all three. Scott, you have one co comment before we go? I actually have one, uh, one alibi uh, regarding the podcast. Uh, for the audience now, because I know you have a, a tremendous following, if you haven't seen already, go back to um, – your current setup just because just as a business owner in general you'd find some incredible tools and some great subject matter experts um, I've actually learned things I never thought I learned about <laughs> SEO and other things especially hiring interns you guys run the gamut with some of the podcasts that you do um, especially with some of the people you brought in to do so so I always encourage anybody when listening to these podcasts because there's such a wide range of what a business owner needs to learn from and what they can learn from so please go ahead and subscribe and see what's on there whether it's on iTunes or any of the other areas Areas. Um, take a nice look at your web page, yeah, which I think well, you do, already mentioned it. But, I, I'm uh, not sure I even said it. I'll, I'll, I'll just articulate it here. We just in this past uh, two weeks uh, have launched a brand new website. Right. 
So it is B2B, the number two in there, b2b.dnb.com. So just on Dun & Bradstreet's main site, it's a subdomain on there. It is brand new and we've reclassified, kind of reorganized the podcast. Um, and I think we're, we're really onto some good stuff there. Put whole new pages up on describing what is business credit and how you can leverage it and what are steps to grow it. We've got a whole bunch of different good stuff and it's, uh, we're just gonna keep adding more, including uh, you know, recordings and, and uh, like this one here today. So thanks a bunch, Scott. I really enjoyed. You're, you're well featured on the new site from a lot of the great stuff that, that Scott has done there. So really great. So again, on behalf of the entire Dun & Bradstreet team, I really want to thank the, the three of you um, for really making this a, a, an awesome show. And we, we obviously look forward to learning more from you guys in the future. Thank you so thank you. much. Thank you.